So first of all, I mean, we sort of touched on this briefly in the first episode, but could you give me a, a, a kind of a brief biography of yourself, I guess, just for the listeners? Uh, sure, I, I'll do the best I can. I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Raymond Wiley. I was born and raised here in uh, the state of Georgia. I'm currently sitting outside um, in Canton, Georgia, amidst the suburban sprawl of northwest Atlanta. So it sort of gives you an idea of my background. Um, so, you know... Growing up the way I did, I think religion uh, is always sort of at the forefront. And uh, so I guess, you know, as you can imagine, sort of free-spirited people get a little, uh, shall we say, um, they get a little fed up with being told what to think and how to believe about things. And I think living in such a religiously intense environment as I do down here in the Bible Belt, that pushed me to that point much earlier than life than a lot of people. And so ever since I was about 15 or 16, I've been sort of exploring and looking at other religious traditions in the West, especially, that are sort of non-Christian, I suppose, in origin. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, I also do a radio show and podcast called Out There Radio, which we just... Um, we just wrapped production on a couple of weeks ago, the 50th episode and the final one. Yeah, we mentioned uh, it in the last episode, actually. <laughs> so oh, that's... That, yeah, that's right. We, uh, when we talked about this before, your audience is probably a little bit familiar with the show. So um, in that show, we took up to, to you know, look at occult topics, which is, I think, a lot of what we're going to talk about today, as well as conspiracy theories and obscure history and things like that. So that's led me into a lot of other sort of fields of study. Um, but I think the one that people apparently want to hear about the most is the occult. So it's sort of interesting to me. But um, i got to ask you, Ken, I don't know, uh, why am I a guest on podcasts? When did this happen to me? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just a podcaster myself. So this has been, this has been sort of an interesting turnaround. Yeah, um, you've been on a few shows, me. though, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been kind of weird. Why am I here, man? <laughs> well, you're an interesting guy. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm, I guess I'm just, I'm just setting you up to compliment me by saying that. So <laughs> maybe I should back off. Um, but yeah, what would you like to talk about today, man? We, I've, got a, I've got a lot of stuff up my sleeve that maybe your audience hasn't heard too much about. So. Well, basically, w- this episode, we're going to try and do a kind of a 101, an introduction to the occult. We had Lon Milo Duquette on last week, and uh, it suddenly occurred to me, uh, during that, actually, that 
for listeners that don't really know anything about the occult, a lot of that interview isn't going to make a lot of sense. So uh, I thought if we set up by doing some like early occult shows, and then we can you know maybe have you on in a, a few weeks' time and do a bit more of an intense kind of uh, in-depth look at certain traditions i guess within the occult so that's the kind of well, well that'd be fine i mean for me it's an honor just to be seen as an appendix to von milo to Ket. <laughs> so uh that that's fine uh, so uh yeah wh- where do you want to start king i was gonna say fire away i was really just i mean we've covered it slightly already but how what really drew you to the occult because i believe you studied it at university didn't you to a degree uh you know i studied history at the university of georgia i just like i said just graduated with a bachelor's degree in history and um but, of course, in a normal history program, you don't really get um, that much detail about things like occult and esoteric movements. And even in religion departments, it's very, it's very tough to find people who are focused on these areas with, with so many other religions and traditions to be studied. Um, for me, it was discovering the UGA library. Um, for years before that, I had been in and out of New Age and occult bookstores, which I'm sure most of your audience have in their town, yeah. or, you know, the uh, speculation section in the larger chain stores or whatever. So I've gone through a lot of books, but, you know, even to my young eye, I can see that a lot of it was just hogwash, you know, and um, or that a lot of it was just put out for mass consumption, and it had, had very little scholastic value. And I kept looking for something that would, you know, teach me, well, where, where do all these things come from? You know, I keep hearing mythology. So, yeah, you hear a lot about things like the mythical founding of pagan religions, how they stretch back two and three thousand years in a direct line, and you hear about, like, uh, the, you know, the Freemasons being descended from the, the, you know, the esoteric masters of the Temple of Solomon who built it, and, you know, all of these sorts of things, and those things, you know, are mythology, and they have their place within a belief system, especially a spiritual and religious belief system steeped in ancient mythology, okay? But what I was really hungry for and never found until I got to UGA were scholastic books about the history of the occult, and <clears throat> books that really looked at the texts as they are and as they were passed down. And there is quite a bit of information that, that is beyond the realm of speculation that we have and can sort of empirically look at. And I think some of those things I'd like to talk about a little bit today. Yeah. Um, but before we go on, if you have notes in front of you, audience, or whatever, you might want to write this down if I say nothing else today. Uh, the works of Francis Yates are perhaps the most important uh, in understanding the history of uh, the occult and esoteric movement. Oh, right. um, I've never book, heard of him. Her book, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, um, <laughs> The Art of Memory, The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age, and The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. These books... Um, are going to figure heavily in probably some of the stuff we talk about today. All right, yeah. So okay, before we go on, I, I did. I, I have sort of a great way to sum this up, because we got to get back to the 101, right? Yeah. Um, the occult is uh, like a river, okay? Mm-hmm. And for the, um, for the basis for the re- next hour, we're going to use the word occult and the river and Western esoteric tradition basically interchangeably. Yeah. They all mean basically the same thing. And, there are, and what we're talking about here is a syncretic tradition of religious and spiritual practices that have grown as the years have gone by. So imagine it, like I said, like a great river. Yeah. And as the years go on, I mean, it stretches far back into time, 2,000 years, as far as our recorded histories can accurately show us anything. Yeah. And as time goes on, um, 
new tributaries flow into this river. And because of the nature of a river, um, new ideas, new tributaries only make the flow stronger and only add more, I guess, majesty and power in a way to, um, to its flow, I yeah. guess. So we're going to look, I guess, at the way different traditions, different tributaries have come down into this river over the years yeah. from very odd places. <laughs> and oftentimes as the work of one or two people. Um, and you, so you'll see how ideas like astrology, hermeticism, ancient paganism, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, mysticism, spiritualism, tarot, ceremonial magic, all of these things are all in the same, same river, you know, the same body. Yeah. And somehow they all mix together. And it's very strange because, I mean, if we look at, the history of other religions, it seems like every time that there's a schism, it in fact, in fact makes the whole weaker. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Here, schisms are just invited into the door, and, you know, they have a seat at the table. And somehow this system has worked itself out in a way that is sort of congruent to itself, <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough, although there may be some reaching involved. Mm-hmm. So... um does that make any sense as far as a basic? Yeah, no, definitely. That was really good. One thing, actually, I was going to quickly ask you before we go on is that I guess today we'll mainly be talking about the kind of Western tradition rather than the Eastern tradition, but could you sort of define the differences between the two? Well, I'd say that when we're talking about Western traditions, the farthest East we're going to go is maybe to India. Mm. But even then, it'll only be the rumors of what Westerners think India is like, Yeah, you see in ancient times. So, um, yeah, it's, it's basically the Middle East, Egypt, Greece, Palestine, the area around the Mediterranean that we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. And um, the fact that this tradition grows up in this geographic area, I think, goes back to the conquest of Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. bringing sort of Greek ideas throughout the Mediterranean and giving birth to what historians call the Hellenistic period. Mm. This period lasted from roughly 300 B.C. to 300 A.D. And from this period, most of the texts that we have that are surviving about classical astrology, paganism, hermeticism, they come from this period. And imagine the Mediterranean then, like, say, the United States is now, as a melting pot of different cultures. Yeah. A lot of people coming in, a lot of ideas being mixed together. And as major historical events and shifts happen, ideas are brought into contact and bam, a new tributary comes into our river. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we should start sort of at the beginning. <laughs> that's always helpful. Yeah, right. Um, wh- where was the first real appearance of, I guess, like the word occult or like the, uh, the first tradition, I guess, of the occult, if that makes sense? Well, we'll start with, um, you know, uh, religion as it was in ancient times. Yeah. Okay. Polytheistic, heavily pagan, as we would call today. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, we've read about this in books of Greek mythology and in Homer and such. Okay, From these mythologies and these old traditions develop certain mystical systems based usually around Greeks. Um, but in this case, the first major connection, the first two streams that come together are the Greeks and their um, platonic and neoplatonic ideas, their philosophies, mm-hmm. the idea that there is a world that is invisible yeah. to us, uh, ideal forms that we can contemplate upon and therefore raise our spiritual state in some way. 
this idea collides, or not collides, but meshes with the idea of Egyptian mysticism and magic. And so, but but it's very interesting because what we're talking about as far as Egyptian magic is, and you see all these books on the shelves about Egyptian magic and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, not even the ancient Greeks, who were 2,000 years closer to them than we, uh, knew what their religious practices were really like. So the first text, and this is the first text I really want to talk about today, um, that shows this Greek and Egyptian meshing of philosophies is a text we call the Latin Asclepius. Now, surely there were, there were ones before, but this one survived down to the Middle Ages and is commented on by church fathers. Mm-hmm. Okay, This is a hermetic dialogue between the Hellenistic god Hermes Trismegistus, who is like an amalgamation of Thoth and Hermes, and the Greek god Asclepius, son of Apollo, god of healing. Mm-hmm. And Asclepius asks Hermes, well, what, what, was, what was the religion of the ancient Egyptians like? You know, what, what were they up to? You know? And he says, well, they had the power to draw down the forces and influences of the heavens, for good or for bad, into their statues and into the monuments that they created. And thus, they had magical powers, like we, like we read about, say, in Exodus or something like that. Yeah. Okay? So... The, the Greeks loved this stuff, and um, this is one of those key texts. But what's so key about it, like I said, is the fact that it's, it's called the Latin Asclepius. It's translated into Latin in the early days and handed down from one church father after another. They make different commentaries on it, these church fathers. Some of them say, okay, he's just describing a system of, of um, natural astrology. And for them, natural astrology was like science. Some church fathers said, no, 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 this is heresy and idol worship and the evil religion of the ancient Egyptians. And I think the major church fathers weighed in on that that way. But, yeah. those texts, but that text survived and was commented on. So there's this awareness that there's something magical in Egypt in the past. Okay, well, let's fast forward to the Renaissance. Aren't you glad? Because it would have taken us a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think an hour would have covered it. No. Let's fast forward to the very early Renaissance, the late 1400s. Okay, um, there are major trading cities in, in places like Venice, northern Italy. Okay, one of the major families running some of this trade is the de Medici's. Okay, and the, you know they are famous patrons of many Renaissance artists that you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were also patrons of scholars, and they Cosimo de Medici sent his um, denizens, his underlings, whatever you want to call them, out into Turkey and into down to, I guess, the southeast of where they were uh, in Italy to find old Greek texts that had survived the fall of Constantinople. This is the late 1400s. Constantinople fell in 1456, only 20 or 30 years before. So all these Christian texts and all this learning that we're in all these monasteries come streaming west. And Medici starts picking this stuff up and bringing major works that we still know of today into the European, you know, theater, as it were, into the European realm of learning. So two texts that he gets a hold of. One is, um, it's like Plato. 
or something like that. It's like Plato's <laughs> Republic or something like that. And the other is these herm- the Corpus Hermeticum, a full set of Hermetic dialogues from ancient times. Okay, and then this shows you where these people were at. The Medici is like, no, 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 you don't need to translate Plato. I want Hermes Trismegistus, and I want to read it in Latin before I die. Yeah. And so that shows you that there is this mystical interest amongst a lot of these people, even back then, because all they would have known from, about Hermes was this Latin Asclepius text. So a whole other body of Hermetic uh, uh, texts come into Europe. Okay, The guy that de Medici, Cosimo de' Medici, gets to translate these texts is Marcellino Ficino. He's very important. He's the one who really adds the hermetic element and starts off this Renaissance occult thing. He translates the Corpus Hermeticum and he says, ah, just like the other church fathers have been saying, mm. you know, these hermetic texts are natural astrology. They're a natural kind of magic. It's like science. It's totally cool. It's, you know, it's totally positive. There's nothing heretical about it. Mm-hmm. And he says the way to practice this is to draw the heavens or a map of the heavens, say, on your ceiling. This is one way he says. And to contemplate the planets or whatever, you know, positive planet like Jupiter or Venus, you know, you want to draw the power down from, much like the Egyptians are doing in their texts and their statues. Same thing. Are we seeing the idea of correspondences here? Yeah. Coming like, <laughs> into the forefront? Yeah. And this, this idea of, of as above, so below? Mm-hmm. Okay, and when I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. Oh, yeah. Now, that's another hermetic text called the Emerald Tablet. And the legend goes is that, you know, back hundreds of years ago, you know, adepts found the tomb of Hermes Trismegistus, this Hellenistic god person. And if you've ever seen something like, oh, I don't know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or whatever, and they go and find the ninth tomb and he's got the inscription written on his shield, it's the same thing here. The story goes that a group of adepts or so, or, or whatever, found the tomb of old Hermes and that there was a tablet on his chest made of emerald, pure emerald, like one slab of it, somehow poured, not chiseled, so that the letters looked right. And it has all these famous axioms on it that, you know, live on down into pagan and neo-pagan practices and Wiccan practices today even, um, strangely enough. One of them being as above, so below, which I'm sure you've heard many times before. Mm -hmm. So Hermes is synonymous with correspondence and astrology and it being reintegrated into the Western mind to a much greater degree. So we have this idea of correspondences. That's that's Pacino's doing, him bringing that and translating it into Latin for de' Medici. Okay? Yeah. Other churchmen of the time, other clergymen of the time, pick up on these texts, and many of them are like, oh, this is great. Just like I said before, this is natural magic. This is science. This is, you know the way the heavens are actually ruled. And there's nothing wrong with using this to some degree, um, especially in its positive aspects, as long as it's not used to conjure demons or whatever, they would say. So in the and, and this period that Ficino burst, this hermetic Catholic thing, uh, it lasts for more than 100 years. 
And there are, not all, of course, but there are many, many, many churches and many clergymen who are reading about the ideas and reading about Hermes Trismegistus, this Corpus Hermeticum. And uh, he even ends up in, like, stained glass windows and cathedrals that are built at the time. There he is, Hermes Trismegistus, right in the middle of a Catholic church. It's quite bizarre. Yeah. Um, but, and, and he is seen as contemporary with Moses, okay, and able and working the same sort of magic that Moses is working with his staff or whatever in Exodus, okay? Yeah. And they believe that he was in, in possession of what they called a Prisca Theologia, a pristine theology that had been handed down from time immemorial, you know, from the angels or whatever, yeah. or from God or something like that. Now, it doesn't end there, though. Other elements get added into this hermetic renaissance in the church. Um, Pacino comes into contact with Pico Mirandola. Okay? You may have read about Mirandola in, in, in your Western civilizations class in college. He writes about the, the divine nature of man or the higher nature of a man and all this stuff. If you, if you know your Shakespeare, Shakespeare says, oh, what a piece of work is a man. Yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And that's lifted straight from Mirandola. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so Mirandola, interestingly enough, is a student of Hebrew. You know, Constantinople fell, that brought Hermeticism in. Then we have another historical event that goes on in the late 1400s, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Okay. This sends Jews from Iberia flooding east towards Italy. And there they come into contact with Mirandola, and Mirandola is interested in their Kabbalah, their mystical system. And he starts studying it and studies Hebrew. He brings these ideas uh, and discusses them with Ficino and sort of marries the two ideas together in his own philosophy. So we see another tributary coming in. Mirandola brings, Pico brings... Kabbalah in. To him, it's a Christian Kabbalah, spelled C-A-B-A-L-A. And he just, for him, it's proof, sort of this alchemical proof that uh, God is in three parts. (laughs) It's very strange. Um, But it's almost ecumenical in in its nature, and the reason that it's integrated into the system is it's almost trying to bring Jews into the Christian system, it seems like. But it's hard to know what Mirandola's intentions really were. Ficino, I would certainly believe, was a devout Christian, but I don't know about Mirandola. Mm. So, but yes, he has this Kabbalistic element in. Okay, you know, if, you, if you've ever watched like James Burke or whatever, you know, he talks about how people back then thought of the universe as an onion, you know, with concentric crystal spheres driven by angels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The lowest rungs are these astrological correspondences we were talking about earlier, the planets ruled by the spirit of Venus or the spirit of Jupiter or whatever. Above that, Mirandola lays this angelic hierarchy, stretching up closer to God, you see, like adding more more leaves to the onion, as it were, and making the system more complex and, you know, closer to what it looks like when somebody like Robert Flood draws the diagrams you may have seen that look like this. So, picking up on the work of Mirandola and Ficino is a man named Hans Cornelius Agrippa. I'm sure he's well known to your audience. 
he, you'll always find his three books of occult philosophy on the shelf yeah, at yeah. any New Age bookstore. Yeah, they're everywhere. Very though. <laughs> they call it the foundation book of Western occultism, you know, and I'm sure Donald Tyson labored long on it. Uh, and it's very nice. It's very nice. And, and it's interesting because whereas Pacino and uh, Mirandola never published their ideas into a set system, that's what he does. He tries to sum up sort of the occult systems that they presented and add another layer on top of it, a creative element. And there is um, sort of like early anthropological data in there about the different folk magic traditions of other peoples in Europe mm-hmm. that he had seen as he traveled. So it's really a good compendium. And, and perhaps not worth reading the whole way through unless you're incredibly interested or want to practice some of it. But certainly... Um, you can see its influence everywhere afterwards. And Agrippa, unlike the Italians, gets the reputation as a magician and as a sorcerer. And he is not well-liked throughout Europe. And he could not travel um, anywhere he pleased. You know what I'm saying? I don't think he could have gone to Venice. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I may be wrong about that, but I think the Inquisition would have grabbed him. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) As, As happened to some of the people we will talk about later. So... You, you see his book still. And so he sums it up and prints it. And see, there's printing presses at this time. It's in Germany. Texts are spreading all over the place. And this three books of occult philosophy gets widely distributed. So, you know, Llewellyn's claim that it is the foundation book of Western occultism may actually not be far off. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, it is bombastic as it sounds. You know? <laughs> um, so Agrippa is a key part of the system. He also travels around and like, as he travels around Europe, like different groups apparently popped up around him, hmm. like little cult of personality or whatever. I don't know how you describe it. I, and I don't know, and there's no way to know if they worked magic together or worked this system together in some way. But it's interesting to see this idea of the traveling Renaissance magician with adherents popping up here and there, wherever he travels as he teaches these philosophies. People were very thirsty for this knowledge. Hmm. And his book, though heretical to many, was well distributed. So, um, any questions before we move forward? Um, no, I think it's the, I think we're about to hit the stuff that I find personally most interesting. <laughs> anyway, so I'm quite um, looking forward to going on. But actually, before we do get to that bit, we're going to cut to a break. We're going to play a piece of music by The Secret Chiefs 3, called uh, it's a cover of the halloween theme tune um from the film halloween and uh, it's really really good and we're gonna have a couple of advert breaks in there as well so we'll see you in a minute Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. 
This Week in Tech, Warrentown Talk, NASCAR Zone, Shelly the Republican, A Voice from Eden, Jimmy McBean, Five Minutes with Wichita, Cinema Playground, Offbeat, The Logo Factory, The Zany Warriors, Exit 50, This and That with Jeff and Matt, Thoughts on Psychiatry, Web Hosting Show, Merlin from Berlin, Random Cast, Jazz with Tiger, American Road Trip Show, The Drew M Podcast, The Slam Idol Podcast, Forgotten Tales, The Zencast, XboxStation.net, How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory.
Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. And we're back with Raymond Wiley, uh, formerly of Out There Radio, and uh, we'll uh, talk about what he's going to be doing in the future later on. But we're actually going to go back to the past again and talk about the, uh, the history of the. Yeah, I I hope I'm not being too dull. No, you know, no, I no, just, this is I, really I, interesting. I feel like even though it might take more than one listen to this to take in this, this chain of events, um, once you get it in your head, uh, you sort of have an idea of where you come from yeah. if you're into the occult. No, I think it's good. The new agey stuff. You're definitely giving us a really good grounding in, uh, in the stuff, so that's really good. But well, you can read all of this stuff in the works of Francis Yates. You know, <laughs> I mean, I might as well be reading it off the page. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, moving on. So Agrippa, you've read his book, you've seen his book. Donald Tyson, uh, you know, does a lot of annotations on it, and so it can be studied very well. And that Emerald Tablet I talked about earlier is also reprinted in it. So um, hmm. a worthy read. So moving on past Agrippa, you know, this is that's sort of the high tide, I think. And you have a few people that come later, uh, 50, 50 years or so later than Agrippa, who are very interesting. And they're, uh, in, in, in general or, or in particular, Giordano Bruno and Dr. John D. We'll talk about Giordano Bruno first, though he is the ultimate example, and I wish I could save him for the end. Bruno goes back and reads these hermetic texts, drinks in the astrology and the Kabbalah of Mirandola and Ficino and Agrippa, and he says, you know what? Screw it. This is not Christianity. The Christians have it all wrong. Copernicus is right. The sun is at the center of everything, and it's at the center of everything because the Egyptians say so and because their magic is real. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes all the way. Now, he might not have admitted to that all the time. And in fact, many of his texts talk about his devout Christian beliefs. But in the end, that was where that man was at, I think. And what's interesting about Bruno is he starts off as a Cistercian monk. I guess it's a common, right, common story. Starts off as a Cistercian monk, gets into the Hermeticism more and more deeply, finally gets kicked out of monk school, (laughs) you know, um, and begins traveling around Europe and writing. Now, the element, the tributary that he adds to all of this is the idea of the art of memory, Um, if, uh, if you may may or may not be aware, but it is said that in ancient times, Roman generals knew the names of every man in their legion. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is because the ancients apparently had uh, more frequent use of mnemonic devices. I mean, you see spelling bee champions and such using these things now. They actually exist outside of any occult significance they may have mm-hmm. and can be used to sharpen your memory to an extreme. And yeah. you remember long lists and huge amounts of data. And this art of memory, uh, Bruno writes about and lays within a magical context. And um, his writings about building a theater of the mind theater of memory, charging magical objects, 
laying everything in its proper place within a map of the universe. These sorts of things are very interesting. And also, his idea that space is infinite, and that it is empty out there between the stars, and that um, there are multiple, or could be in this universe, multiple inhabited worlds. Now, humanists and, and, and historians of science will tell you that is what he died for and was burned at the stake for in 1600. But uh, I would say the traveling, the traveling occultism probably had a lot to do with that, too. <laughs> you know, hmm. and especially because as time wore on, uh, that hermetic renaissance lost steam in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, he's the martyr to the cause. He goes all the way. He admits what he's looking at is not Christianity. Um, and, you know, as a martyr, there's a statue of him in Rome, you know, looking looking very cool in his <laughs> robe and hood and all that. So, um but he's he's really worth studying because, and you can link him directly to the past too, especially to Agrippa, because there's all these writings about when he goes to Oxford. Okay, he visits England, he goes to Oxford, and he starts spouting off his philosophies, and you know he has a disdain for the Oxford folks. He he you know he looks at them as academics, and calls them grammarian pedants. I believe is the, <laughs> is the term he used. Yeah. And um, but they recognize him for what he is too. And one of them like goes back to his quarters or whatever at the college and grabs his three books of occult philosophy <laughs> and comes back and says, oh, is this just what you're spouting? And sort of like waves it in his face at this famous, you know, exchange here. Hmm. So um, that tells you how closely related Bruno's ideas are to Agrippa and then, of course, to Mirandola and Pacino behind him. Mm-hmm. So... Bruno's an interesting story. You can read whole biographies of him, and I would definitely say it's worth it because he's uh, he's got a lot of spirit. He acts really dumb and immature sometimes, but he's got a lot of spirit. <laughs> Could you recommend a book, so, actually? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. In fact, uh, most of what I've just told you is that book. Yeah. So, Or in that book, anyway. Okay, so that brings us to Dr. John D., the final of the great Renaissance occult figures that we're going to talk about. Dr. John Dee was an uh, astrologer, a physician, uh, a courtier. Uh, a, yeah, courtier, right? That's yeah. the male equivalent, yeah. uh, I think. Um, he, you know, he, and he, you know, so the cryptographer, perhaps even a spy, you know, he fulfilled a lot of purposes within uh, Elizabethan England, okay? Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was, I believe, well-liked by Elizabeth. I, I think he shows up as a character in that new Kate Blanchett film. Yeah. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken about this I think it's about the Spanish Armada or something. Yeah like it is, yeah, yeah. So um anyway, he's interesting for a number of reasons. Your listeners may have, have, have heard about him if they've read about a concept called Enochian magic. Yeah. Uh, Enochian magic is an interesting system that um, many books have been printed about, both good and bad, and uh, it it derives from this early form of spiritualism that Dr. D practiced, sort of like a seance, really. Yeah. Um, now, he scrying was often done in those times, and if you read about Nostradamus and other people like that, they were scryers. You know, they looked into a glass, or I think Nostradamus looked into a cup of water or something like that. Well, John D. couldn't do it himself. 
he needed to find uh, a scryer. And he, at first, was looking for a child, which was often done at the time. He looked for, like, a child or a virgin or somebody who's exceptionally pure and hopefully ignorant, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, to to try to, like, you know, be a conduit for messages from spirits. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, you're not just making it up yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Dee had limited success with the first people that he worked with. Uh, I think they were young boys. Um, then uh, he meets this guy, Edward Kelly. Now, it's strange. Uh, about two weeks before Edward Kelly shows up at Dr. D's door, a soapstone magically appears on Dr. D's windowsill uh, when he wakes up in the morning. <laughs> and this is the soapstone that he later used to do the scrying with Edward Kelly. And Kelly, of course, immediately recognizes its magical power when he comes barging into D's house or however he, however he contrived to meet him the first time, you know. Yeah. So... So Kelly's a very interesting figure because, I mean, there, there are rumors that when he meets Dee, his ears have already been copped, uh, cropped, copped, whatever, um, you know, as the punishment they used to do back in those days and mark you as a criminal for the rest of your life, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to know, you know. He must have been very charismatic. That's all I, that's all I can say for Dee to have taken to him so well. Yeah. And they begin uh, many years of uh, sort of spiritualist seances uh, with a sort of astrological basis in the, in the books of Agrippa and the works of Mirandola and Ficino. Um, their map of the universe looks strangely the same. <laughs> and uh, Dee and Kelly claim to have been contacted by spirits, um, Enochian angels, we call them now. And they were supposedly the keepers of these celestial spheres and, you know, uh, were able to give information. And But they, they were very strange about how they communicated it. They, they communicated it in their own language, the Enochian language, mm-hmm. which had its own alphabet, which looks a lot like Hebrew. Yeah, and a... one letter at a time and backwards. So I can't imagine how long these scrying <laughs> sessions would have taken yeah. and how, you know, the, you know, how hardcore they must have been. But you can read the transcripts, if you will, of these uh, sessions in a book called The True and Faithful Relation of Dr. John D. It's sort of a funny title if you think about it. <laughs> but uh, so it's hard to know whether Kelly actually had spiritual and religious experiences and, and you know, tapped in in sort of a Pentecostal, I guess, way to some other kind of spirit, or whether he was just making it all up as he went. But if he did make it all up as he went, he must have known Agrippa back and forth. And I guess those spirits must have known Agrippa back and forth, too. Mm-hmm. Or Agrippa must have had it almost right, you know. So I won't tell you what I think as, um, as a history student about <laughs> this. I'll, just, I'll, I'll let the mystery lie. <laughs> but um, it's very interesting stuff. Now, this is what we get passed down of D, but his role in the, in the whole Western esoteric movement is so much more important than that. He um, composes a symbol. It's sort of supposed to be like the ultimate magical sigil or seal. It's called the hieroglyphic monad. Uh, you may have seen it. You can Google it, I'm sure. Um, and it's sort of a, a sigil or a seal that is a combination of a bunch of positive uh, astrological symbols and Kabbalistic and other kinds of symbols are thrown in there too. And it's supposed to be like the ultimate 
the ultimate good luck charm or whatever. I mean, obviously it has a more revered significance than just as a good luck charm, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. It's a talisman, mm-hmm. you know, just like those ancient Egyptians, the Greeks dreamed about. So he traveled as well within Protestant lands, I suppose. I don't know if he ever went to, um, he might have gone to France. I don't think he ever went to Italy, but he certainly traveled in Germany. And it's rumored that just like with uh, Agrippa, and I didn't mention this before, but also Bruno before him, that it's, it's rumored that groups of adherents, disciples, sprung up about him, uh, and they would practice his system. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no direct proof of this other than what, um, well, what I'm about to get to, I guess. We've heard of Rosicrucians, right? Yeah. Well, um, these kicking around in Germany in the late 1590s, and the Rosicrucian manifestos start popping out in, uh, what is it, the Palatinate, I think is the, what the region was called back then, mm. uh, in about 1606, 1607, I believe. Yeah. So there's very little time in between. And the original tracks of those Rosicrucian manifestos uh, are printed with another work in them, you know, and it's, and it's all lamenting about their brothers who had been captured by the Spanish and were slaving on the galleys of the Jesuits. This all bad story, you know. Because they used to make you row, like in Ben-Hur. The, the Jesuits did that. It wasn't just the Romans, okay? Um, anyway, I digress. The <laughs> point is, is that was one track that's in, in one of these. And, it, and another track that's in here is like, you know, it's t- the way it's titled at the front is like, you know, Fama Fraternus, blah, 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 you know. This is the Rosicrucian Manifesto. And also, the more secret philosophy behind this philosophy. And you turn to the section that is the more secret philosophy behind this philosophy, and it is the hieroglyphic monad of John D. Hmm. How? You want to know where Rosicrucians came from? That's where Rosicrucians came from. <laughs> you know, there's no need for mythology. All you have to do is go back and look at the original text yeah. in it. And it's as clear as day. It's right within the political and religious atmosphere of the place that it was printed. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, and you can prove that D had been in the area before. So, and that is, I think, the key of all the discoveries of Francis Yates. And we're about to leave her work behind now. But of all of her discoveries, that is, I think, the most crucial is that there is D starting the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. And that, you know, that brings about a whole a whole new set of things. Yeah. And the idea that the occult is not something that just churchmen can stumble upon. Hmm. Or Cosimo de' Medici, the learned rich man, can read and read and read about and finally get his, get his hands on. Now, the occult is a, is the, the realm of the brotherhood, of the secret group. And it is their job to bring a rational, positive future you know, this is the time things like Francis Bacon's New Atlantis are coming out and other works, you know, that are talking. And, of course, the Rosicrucians themselves talk about a greater reformation of the whole wide world. And this is all going on within the context of the Hundred Years' War, yeah. you know. And the Spanish and the Austrians are, you know, just killing the hell out of Protestants all over the place, and, and vice versa, of course. Yeah. But... Uh, we really, if we're on the side of these occultists, you know, then I guess the Spanish end up being bad guys in yeah. our story. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense, you know, historically speaking. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Um, I can, you know. But anyway, I mean, I guess, I guess, um, I guess we're, I guess the our descendants are no worse, right? So what we've done over here in America isn't much, much better. Nice. So, but I, dig- I digress as usual. So the Rosicrucians, um, you can read about them. You can read their manifestos online. You know, it's so old. There's no copyright on this stuff anymore. You can find it. And it's, it's like great enlightenment spirituality. And it's, ob- and it's pretty easy to see how it leads to a hundred years later, the founding of the first Freemasons' lodges as a more organized form of this. Now, Rosicrucianism, of course, survives, but really it evolves. It evolves into Freemasonry. And, um, you know, there are a million stories about the origins of Freemasonry, and there's a lot of speculation all the way around. But it seems to me that that's the direct descendant right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm sure other things, you know, like medieval craft guilds and things like that, obviously, but these these rational enlightenment ideas, this moral idea, I think this is, this is major. And the idea that you can make the world a better place through works of man, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, Freemasons, that's a whole other topic. We're trying to stay on this occult thing and trying to get us up to today. So let's skip forward another couple hundred years. The Freemasons have been doing their thing for a while. America gets founded. You can talk about that forever. Yeah. You know, um, uh, that's a whole other show, I think. And the occultism, you know, blah, blah, blah. There are way bigger rednecks than I who will talk your ear off about that. Um, but what's interesting is, is the idea of a initiatory degree system that you move up and learn more as you pass up through degrees. Mm. And uh, there's sort of an inner circle within an inner circle within an inner circle. And we see how that mirrors this idea, this cosmological idea of this onion-shaped universe still very well, even though by then they had sort of figured out the basics of modern astronomy. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So, oh, I forgot to tell you what put the, put the nail in old Hermes Trismegistus' coffin. Uh, right. uh, the um, this guy Isaac Casabon comes along and figures out how to date Latin and Greek texts, and realizes that these uh, Hermetic texts are not contemporary with the time of Moses at all, but are more contemporary with the time of Christ. And so, uh, immediately the red flag goes up, and that's the end of Hermes being on stained glass windows and such. <laughs> so, sorry that I forgot about that. <laughs> that's okay. That happens right after. That happens right as all this is going on, 1607, I think, 1612, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And Cosabon is also the guy that puts out a true and faithful relation of John D., which is an interesting corollary. But, so Freemasons bring in this idea of initiatory degree system of a secret knowledge passed down from however far back of symbology and uh, a reverence for Egyptian and Orientalism, as they called it at the time, mm-hmm. um, and, and these sorts of things. And so, you know, I mean, it's just like it is now, I think. A lot of people look at it as a fraternity that, uh, you know, like a college fraternity, you know, and the, and the rituals, they have a purpose, but, but their hidden and inner meaning is of little significance you know, to most of the people within the group. You know what I'm saying? They're doing yeah, it for yeah. the social element, for the yeah. community. 
But then there have always been some who are more speculative, as they say, in nature, who are more interested in the occult elements and the occult aspects of it. These, of course, end up being the great thinkers among the Masons as well, the Albert Pikes, the Manly P. Halls. Yeah, okay? yeah. Some of these Masons in Victorian England um, decided they were going to found their own uh, speculative esoteric lodge. These guys were um, S.L. McGregor Mathers, William Wynn Westcott. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was one more in the Magic Trio that I always forget. Do you remember who it was? No. I, this, I can't remember the name. I was just trying to think of it this then. Um, oh, well, I'm sure I'm sure our listeners Is it Woodward? Are, are beating us to it right now. Is it Woodward? So, what? Yeah, what, what, what would you say? Woodward, isn't it? Woodward, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. Woodward, yeah. That's all those W's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, Woodward... Uh, Westcott and Mathers. Okay, and they come together and decide to form an esoteric lodge. This lodge is called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, yes. and they, um, you know, they really strip off the more ceremonial, fraternal aspects, or excuse me, they strip off the more community-based, uh, secular aspects of this masonry and reintegrate this idea of hermeticism and magic and astrology into a initiatory structure that goes up through degrees. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is a very famous order. Uh, there were many famous people from Victorian times in, in London that were members. Florence Farr who was a famous actress at the time, was a very strong member of the group. W.B. Yates, mm -hmm. who I, I need not tell you about, <laughs> uh, was in the group as well. Uh, Yates was, in fact, involved in many occult groups at the time. Um, he was in a group called the Celtic Twilight, I believe, with um, Gerald Gardner, who later went on to found uh, the early Wiccan uh, covens that yeah. have so propagated <laughs> since. Um, so, but this Golden Dawn group is very interesting. They take elements from Freemasonry, elements from Theosophy, uh, the you know group founded by Helena Blavatsky in the 1800s, and they they especially take the idea of uh, co-ed fraternity mm -hmm. in from her. And so, both men and women are in the Golden Dawn. They're practicing magic. They're also they're also using tarot, strangely enough, in sort of Kabbalistic. Egyptianistic uh, occult ways that people probably didn't often think of at the time uh, really helped bring that tributary in to this tradition that we're talking about as well. You mm -hmm. know, um, and they picked up on that idea from a man named Elifa Levy, I think is how you would pronounce it in French. <laughs> yeah. uh, Elias Levi, a lot of people will say. Mm -hmm. And he noticed that there were 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 trumps in the tarot deck, and uh, he fell in love after that. <laughs> and his life's work was connecting esoteric ideas to the tarot and the images in the tarot. Mm -hmm. So the Golden Dawn pick up on this idea. They pick up on the idea of Secret Chiefs 3, right? Yep. <laughs> the idea that there's uh, these guys uh, that are going to beam some messages into you or send you a letter and teach you all the mystical secrets, but you'll never meet them in person, or only one of you will be in direct contact with them, you know, like the mullahs or whatever, or the, um, what is it that people are always channeling now? Oh, the Ascended Masters. Yeah, yeah. That's another example of this, right? Um, 
And Theosophy had these mystical figures propping it up, too. So, of course, in this environment, very interesting things go on, and there's, I don't know, they certainly work a magic on the mind of Victorian people, I think, whether they actually were, you know, casting spells or telling the future or astrally projecting or whatever they were trying to do. Um, you know, they certainly fit within their time, yeah. you know, very well. And Mathers, the founder of the group, brings in a man named Alistair Crowley, uh-huh. a young man, <laughs> to be part of his group. And um, it's actually funny. Mathers had, I think, broken off from the group. The group had already split by then. Mathers goes off to Paris and founds his own lodge, his own Golden Dawn, with um, Crowley as his sort of underling is his dark lord of the sith is, you know, whatever you know? <laughs> yeah 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 um you know they didn't look at it like that they looked at themselves like good guys or whatever i suppose but mm-hmm. um and you know there's a whole a whole a bunch of stuff that happens where crowley you know, gets taken to court for trying to rob the golden dawn's offices because he's supposedly now the grand poobah or whatever yeah. you know um and you can hear about this actually we we did uh, an episode about their radio about this called Battle of the Secret Sheep. Yeah, it's a really good episode. And yeah. and yeah, you can hear more about the Golden Dawn in that. I hate to plug my show in the middle. No, of it, no, no, but, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it'll save you some time, yeah. right? So, but uh, but you know, Crowley after leaving the Golden Dawn goes on and does his own set of things, founding groups like the OTO and the AA, which are still in practice today, mm-hmm. still doing their thing. You might have heard of a podcast called the lima coast to coast yeah john crow's um, podcast john yeah. crow's podcast i've met him many times he's a good guy also from the atlanta area here you see how the bible belt breeds us people <laughs> um you know uh but <laughs> yeah he, his show is all about crowley and Galima, and there are numerous works in the occult or uh, new age bookstore about crowley oh, and God, yeah. his way of looking at the world so i i uh i feel like it's, there's no need to teach you about that uh, you can see how he lives in the world today. And then we go back to the Golden Dawn and look at Yates and that other group that he was in, the Quelphic Twilight, with Gerald Gardner. Mm-hmm. Gerald Gardner tries to reconstruct the pagan religions of ancient European times, and from it we get Wicca. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these elements from the Western esoteric tradition come down into Wicca. And you'll you'll talk to a lot of neo-pagans, I think, and I've... I'm, I consider myself part of their community in many ways, so I, I don't think I'm disrespecting anyone. No. Um, but you'll find a lot of them, they'll tell you a very mystical, mythological sort of story about how their tradition has been handed down. Mm-hmm. And um, most of it goes back just to the 19, or the 1800s, the late 1800s, with Gardner and other people. Mm-hmm. There, are, there were folk traditions that lived before that, no doubt. But it's very rare... Uh, to pick up on even a couple of practices handed down this way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But there, but there may be elements. Mm-hmm. I don't discount that. But what I'm trying to show you today is that through texts, you know, texts that are, you know, available and that you can read, uh, you can take a direct link from pagan times, ancient Greek and Egyptian times, all the way down to now, as mm. far as, uh, you know, the ideas of, of, of occultism and the esoteric. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, this is, it's a giant river. Yeah. And as tributaries flow in, 
it just gets bigger and wider and has a bigger impact on the culture at large. Mm-hmm. And let's, I, I, and I think it would bear us out as we end to go over those tributaries again. You got Hermeticism, astrology, ancient paganism, um, Kabbalah, tarot, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, the art of memory, ceremonial magic. All of these things somehow exist within the same sphere. Mm-hmm. or within the same flow, I guess. And th- they somehow make each other stronger, and um, they form a tradition, a real tradition, and that, that's practiced by many people throughout the world, or at least studied by many people throughout the world. So that would be, I guess, my Occult 101. Oh, well, I hope it was all right. Yeah, it was great. Thanks a lot for, for doing that, Raymond. I really appreciate it. It's really interesting, <laughs> as always. Well, thank you very much. Did you want me to throw out a few books? or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that'd be uh, good. Some further reading for the yeah. listeners. Yeah. Like Francis Shapes again, obviously. Um, and then um, three books of occult philosophy, Hans Cornelius Agrippa, translated to English by Donald Tyson with his notes. He's good. He's good. As his career goes on, I think he gets a little bit more grounded. I like that. Um, let's see. Who else is good on this subject? There are very few uh, good films, but I would suggest you can go on YouTube and watch a movie called The Occult Experience. Mm-hmm. It's very good. It is not a TV movie about ritual murder. There was, I think, a British TV movie back in the 70s called The Occult Experience. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a documentary made in the 80s. But it's a great peek at what occultists and people who are into this sort of stuff that actually practice it do or were doing back 20 years ago. Yeah. And so you get, you see an early Wiccan group. You see, uh, um, H.R. Geiger a, in it. A, a Satanist group, even. Yeah. Now, which think... was a whole other story in and of itself, which we don't have time for today, but that, mm. that actually came out of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Satanism thing. Yeah, yeah. Know? I think, um, is that the film with H.R. Geiger in? The, uh, yes. The, yeah. Geiger's, yeah, Geiger's, uh, uh, artwork is featured heavily within that film. Yes. Yeah, I thought so. He's the guy that did the the sign aliens, didn't he, for the aliens film? And uh... yeah, yes, that's that's right. And um, I think a lot of other fantasy and comic book work as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I think the next thing we should talk about really is your plans for the future, I guess. Um, you've just finished out their radio, which is an absolutely brilliant podcast. It's inspired this show quite heavily. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. And uh, it wasn't just a podcast. It was a radio show, wasn't it, as well? Yes, it started off actually uh, as a FM college radio show uh, here in Athens on WUOG. And from the very beginning, we podcasted the episodes, and it was amazing to us how quickly our audience uh, from podcasting and the internet uh, surpassed the audience we were getting on this large 26-kilowatt radio station. Yeah. It was bizarre. (laughs) And so I would call it more of a podcast than anything. And that's where you'll find it on Into the Future at outthereradio.net. And 50 episodes, um, a lot of the stuff you just heard me talk about, you'd find in there in greater detail broken up a little bit more there's a lot of stuff about the conspiracy theories and you know paranormal and obscure things i guess so and some good guests i thought yeah 
And now, you, um, um, in the last episode, you mentioned something about what you're going to be doing. If you'd like to tell us what that is going to be. Oh, yeah. we're um, Me and my cohort, Joe McFall, my co-host, are going to be moving on and doing two new series um, out there. Like I said, will always be available, but it's complete now. And we're going to be doing two podcasts with uh, the people at the Disinformation Company. That's cool. She's a publisher and a DVD distributor out of New York. And uh, you may be familiar with quite a number of their works. Yeah. Um, so one, I think one of the shows will be like a newscast, like a daily show or a Colbert report. Um, probably not as funny if I know us, but, um, <laughs> but it'll be about like strange and interesting news, you know, and mm-hmm. um, just sort of weird stuff. Yeah. It'll be a lot like what you hear at the beginning of an episode of Out There Radio. Yeah. And then the other series will be, um, centered around interviews with authors and filmmakers mm-hmm. um, and, you know, general cool people on the scene, I guess. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, you split out their radio into like two new shows almost. <laughs> it's kind of a... It, it, yeah, it's like out their radio sort of split in half, um, which is good because, you know, I, I think um, if, you, if you lay a lot of news in at the beginning, you know, three years from now, it's not going to be as interesting. Yeah. So... Yeah. I like I like the idea of keeping the news segment. It'll keep it fresh too. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and Austin Gandy, if you're familiar with Austin Gandy, he's am, yep. the, our guest in the episode Battle of the Secret Chiefs. Mm-hmm. He'll be featured in a segment on that show as well. Oh, that's cool. So the Invisible College kind of seg- segment again. Yes, the Invisible College. Uh, the Invisible College shall return. That's right. correct. Good, good. <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to all of that stuff. I'm thinking we'll be premiering. Uh, I would guess early July, early to mid-July, oh, maybe good. earlier, maybe a little later, but and there'll be a good many episodes coming out uh, within a short span, I think, at the beginning, just so there's a lot to digest at first. Yeah, if I'm right in thinking, you can get the first few episodes in it through the, out, the old Out There Radio uh, RSS feed, I think. Right, yeah, if you'll go and uh, subscribe to Out There Radio, you know, like now, like right now, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you can, uh, you'll, you'll certainly get the first episodes of those new podcasts, uh, and you may be able to just continue the feed all together, all on one long list, but, uh, you know, uh, you'll certainly have a link, you'll certainly know exactly where to go, and uh, that's the sh- most surefire way to get that. Uh, those disinfocasts as soon as they come out is to just go ahead and subscribe to Out There Radio now. So, yeah. wow, I'm I'm really a shill, aren't I? <laughs> no, so, it's fine, it's fine. No, I think um, so, we're actually going to have your co-host on back on the show in a few episodes time because we're going to do a round the table discussion about uh, like a panel discussion about Robert Anton Wilson, and I think Joe's quite uh, boned up on Robert Anton Wilson. He knows his stuff, so. We're going to have him on as one of the one of the panel members. Oh yes, I was I was hanging out with him uh, this past weekend. We were getting we were working on some stuff for the new uh, series, and he showed me his uh, his collection of Robert Anton Wilson books. Mm. And he was at a like a and uh, I'm probably ruining his story, but he said he was at a used bookstore and he found a signed Robert Anton Wilson Illuminatus Part Three for two dollars. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> and he at first he thought it was fake, and then. He looked it up and it wasn't fake. And the reason that he knew was because Wilson would put an I in the A in his name and not cross it. So it looked like an I in a triangle. Ah, that's quite cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty neat. <laughs> so, but, right. if he tells that story, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm ruined. <laughs> so, like, I totally, <laughs> I totally just 
ruin the water for him. I'll refer him back yeah. to you. <laughs> but <laughs> what? So um, one other thing I was going to ask you was after you I mean you finished your degree now, obviously. Um, yes. And well done on that. And uh, thank you. Um, what what do you plan on doing? Do you plan on doing anything kind of related to that in the future? I mean, I remember on the first show you were, when we were talking then you were saying something about maybe going to university here or. But I mean, do you plan on you know maybe writing or anything like that? Or well, I would, I would, I tell you, I've been thinking about this more and more lately, especially since I've graduated. I would, I would love to do some sort of um, artistic work, you know, uh, whether it be a book or a spoken word album, perhaps, mm-hmm. or something like that. I would like to do something like that in the future. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's as incredibly time-consuming as some people would assume that it is. Yeah. But you know, it's still a it's still a big a big project, or it's still something like that would be a big project in the midst of the new podcast I'm working on. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to do something like that in the future, and then I would also love to study in the future um, esotericism at a university level, you know, or at a master's or a doc- doctoral level. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. I can, it'll it'll just be a matter of. Uh, that being a door that's open to me, basically. Mm-hmm. I would suggest, however, anybody who's interested and who is perhaps a recent graduate or coming up on graduating and they're interested in studying a scholarly, you know, into esotericism, um, there's the University of Exeter there yeah. in England. Dr. Goodridge-Clark, um, isn't it, I think? Sir? It's uh, Dr. Goodridge-Clark, isn't it? I think it's the... Yeah, uh, Dr. Nicholas yeah. Goodridge-Clark, who you'll... See, almost every day on the History Channel talking about occult Nazis. <laughs> yeah. And a man dear to my heart, at least for if, if that for nothing else, you know, mm-hmm. or if, if for nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, he runs the program there, and I would, you know, I would um, suggest if you're interested in it, you could apply, you know, you know, check it out. University of Exeter, it's the master's degree in Western esotericism. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do that sometime in the future, but um, college, no, no more college is on the plate for me for at least a couple of years. So yeah. hopefully that'll mean more artistic work. So. Yeah, yeah, that'd be yeah. good. Well, anyway, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on again. Um, I'm sure we'll speak again on the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Can I hope I have not uh, been too boring for your no, audience? No. I hope they've gotten something out of it. If they'd like to contact me, they can send me an email at outthereradio at gmail.com if they have any questions or anything. and mm-hmm. Check out my website, outthereradio.net, um, and you'll, you can get right. the new podcast when it's when it's premiered either there you'll be able to get information or of course at disinfo.com mm-hmm. yeah so. and you're on myspace as well aren't you there's a myspace forward slash uh, oh yeah you can stalk me on myspace <laughs> i don't turn my profile to private so you see all of you know all of my uh physical defects and such if you're, if you're into that sort of thing so <laughs> anyway uh, i i really appreciate you having me on ken like i said before i I don't know when I became a guest on podcast. <laughs> well, I think when as you... opposed to just a podcaster myself, so it's quite an honor, I must say. Ah, right. Well, now you've got a uh, quite a good body of work out there for people to look at as well. In, in the, in uh, the no pun intended. Yep. <laughs> you know, I got to stop, stop myself saying that, like <laughs> in every conversation I have about my show. So don't worry about it. Well, thank you very much, Ken. No, that's great. Uh, thanks a lot. Oh.